Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's show is You Need a Criminal Lawyer. My guest today is Brett Tate, who works as a lawyer alongside his father. Brett's practice is half criminal law and half commercial. In this episode, we talk about his journey from a chartered accountant at Cooper's to the world of investment banking, then a stint as a ski instructor at Mount Buller, and finally, doing his articles with his father. And Brett hasn't looked back since. Of course, the criminal law is the interesting part of Brett's work, and he does everything from murders to speeding fines. You'll learn in this episode why clients shouldn't tell him if they did it, and how Brett balances his obligations to both the court and his clients. In Ruben's rant, I talk about political uncertainty and group thinking amongst the major company CEOs. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hi folks, welcome to the Finance Hour. We're live on Jair or on the podcast. Uh, This is a show where we help make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better decisions. My name is Ruben Zeller. I'm a financial planner. I've been doing this podcast for about 20 months now. We've got lots of back episodes. You can search the Finance Hour on iTunes. You can go to my website, adaptwealth.com.au, to the podcast section, or otherwise Google me and maybe find something interesting about me. Hopefully, uh, Hopefully nothing too bad, but... It is great to have you on the show. Of course, today we always talk talk about our lawyers, and funnily enough, we'll be talking to a lawyer today, but I always say don't take anything um, that we talk about on the show today for granted. Always go and get some advice, some something advice from your accountant, from your financial planner, from your lawyer, uh, or from your mate next door who comes over for a barbecue while you're turning the sausages. It's always a great time to to have a chat. Now, the guest on this week's show has been fantastic, and I actually called him about two minutes ago to to come onto the show. I actually stuffed up, and the guest that I originally had for the show is I booked him for next week. But this is someone who I'd wanted to interview for a while anyway. His name is Brett Tate. He is a lawyer uh, specializing in criminal law, which there aren't a lot of criminal lawyers around. So uh, he's also had a fascinating career, it's gone from big four accounting firms to investment banking uh, and then on to law practice. And uh, I always enjoy the stories that he's got to tell about his clients. Uh, he is very entertaining. So it's a show that I'm sure you are going to enjoy today. But before we get to that, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about the concept that the political uncertainty in Canberra, the change of prime minister and the like, is affecting business confidence. You have all these business leaders, the CEOs coming out and saying, oh, you know, the, the prime ministers are changing, you know, it creates a huge amount of uncertainty, you know, we can't make decisions. I reckon it's enormously overblown that. I don't think that a change of prime minister really makes a difference to the average person going out there and buying a computer or buying clothes. I think it's enormously overstated. To me, it's one of these groupthink things that everybody says it and then everybody has to believe it and and then it sounds true when I reckon it's actually 
a load of garbage. Anyway, that's my rant for this week. We're going to have a very short break, and then we will have our guest, Brett Tate, on the phone. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. If you're listening live on Jair or on our podcast, this is the show where we make sense of the world of business and finance. And today on the show, we have a criminal lawyer or criminal lawyer or civil lawyer. His name is Brett Tate, and I'm not sure if I've actually got him on the line now. I might have to call him back. Brett, do I have you? You've got me, Ruben. Oh, fantastic. I thought I hadn't. So, uh, Brett, when I think of you, I think of the uh, the scene in Breaking Bad where Jesse, the young guy, he takes his, he takes his friend to a lawyer and he says... You don't need a lawyer. You need a criminal lawyer. I always have that joke with you, but there aren't many lawyers around who specialise in criminal law, and I know you've had an interesting and varied career. So uh, the listeners would be interested to know. Tell us a bit about your story, about what you studied at university and about where your career has taken you over the last, must be 20-plus years. Oh, we don't need to go into length of time now. <laughs> and um, just, just to clear it up, um, I'm nothing like Better Call Saul, except for the fact that I might have a good sense of humour. Yeah, okay. All right, so they're not going to make a TV series out of you. Oh, you never know. That's what's something that we've got on the cards at the moment. Very good. All right, so tell us a little bit about uh, where you started your career. I know you obviously studied law at Monash University. We know that. But where was your? Uh, where did you first get your start? Got my start. I did uh, law with commerce with an accounting major. And uh, got my first start at uh, what was then Coopers and Lybrand. And anyone that knows the history of the big five as it was um, will know that that dates me some, somewhat. Um, and I was in the tax division. Uh, yeah. I was there for a while doing corporate tax. And before taking a bit of a, a sideways move into structured finance. So did you do you with, did your CPA accounting degree and all, and all that? You did... As a law graduate, you do actually I get did... into the do I get into the argument about CPA versus chartered? Oh, chartered. chartered. That... Oh no, I beg your pardon. I know it was chartered. Either way, it would that's be, okay. Either way, it would have been boring as hell. I'm guessing. Well, let's just say that's probably what made me take a jump into structured finance. So, from accounting to structured finance, which uh, and which where was that at? That was with Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Uh, back to what the what was now Frostwaterhouse Coopers for a bit of project management in the tax area, and um, then it was off for a spell of ski instructing. Before ski instructing, hang on, was that after before you started at Deutsche Bank or after you finished? No, that was after I finished at Pricewaterhouse Coopers. Yeah, um, the second time. Uh, so hang on, the second time. So you went from Pricewaterhouse Coopers to Deutsche back to Pricewaterhouse Coopers. Yep. Really? Yeah, I was shell-shocked by what happened in Deutsche Bank. Politically, what? it was interesting. What happened there? Don't worry, we don't uh, have any of them say they don't necessarily put um, the individual and human feelings and uh, training people at the top of their priority list. Their words were, they like to buy talent, not train it. Right, okay. So it's a, it's a pretty cutthroat industry for people that are contemplating or see, you know, investment banking as, um, you know, a, a career goal that they have. Mm. It's, uh, it is really dog-eat-dog. Was it 18-hour days and all that stuff? 
No, not really. Not in the group that I was in, but no. if, if there was a deal going on, um, then, yeah, it was all hands on deck for as long as required. Okay, so that didn't quite work out there. So you then you, you found yourself back at the uh, back in your old job, was it? Not in my old job, but certainly the old firm, um, doing a slightly different job in um, sort of a, a project management in an area that involved... Uh, project management code is one of those things that means nothing, or it can mean a... I know. Let, let me uh, put something to it. <laughs> uh, I was helping um, start up uh, or get started... Um, the uh, a new area that was trying to take corporate tax compliance, so income tax returns, uh, into the 21st century with paperless work, mm. etc. Um, unfortunately, that was probably a bit too ahead of its time. Yeah. There yeah. was a lot of resistance to that idea, and um, well, was it like we're charging a thousand bucks for a tax return? Why would we do it for a hundred dollars? No, it wasn't. Kind of it wasn't the money. It, it was. A thousand dollars for a tax return—that would have been cheap. <laughs> um, it was no. It was more about who was doing the work and whether the relationship team was losing contact with their clients for yeah. the bread and butter stuff that they that they deal with them every year for. So there was pushback within the within the practice. I see. Okay. Um, I do want to get more into the more interesting stuff because I reckon what you do now, what you've done for the last fifteen years. Is a hell of a lot more interesting than what you used to do, but uh, oh, anyway, just, go on. Just for the uh, sake of the timeline, so uh, that project ended at Price Waterhouse Coopers, did it, and then it was time to move on. Then it was time to move on. Um, thought I'd take a bit of a break, ski instructing for a while, and then one thing led to another, and by accident, literally, I wound up <laughs> working with my father, who was a uh, um, a suburban generalist practitioner uh, with his just uh, himself and uh, he said sit your ass on a chair start your article stay for as long as you want okay well let's say let's just go back to the ski instructing for a minute because that's pretty interesting it's not it's not the typical (laughs) i know you like the skiing (laughs) it's not the typical break uh in career that you'd have for a a chartered accountant come lawyer uh so what just tell us a little bit about about how that eventuated where did you go did you go you know to europe america or just here? No, if only I was up at uh, up at Mount Buller, and uh, I think I'd left the meeting with PwC when they told me that uh, the role that I was filling was become, being made redundant. I told them I thought they should have done it six months ago, and <laughs> or six months earlier, and I went down to Hardware Lane, bought myself a new pair of boots, a new pair of skis, and was up at Buller the next weekend saying I wanted to be a ski instructor. Ah, nice. Um, so it was really a... A not very well paid ski holiday. Unfortunately, I had some redundancy in my money in my pocket to keep me going. So, what did you do that just for that season? Did you? Yeah, just for that season. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't for the accident that I was sort of loosely referring to, who knows? I could be a ski instructor still somewhere in around the world. It's a very um, attractive lifestyle if you like that sort of thing. But um, you have to run a party, have, ski, and make no money. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you've referred to the accident, so do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that if it's not too painful to recount? Oh, you know it's not painful. <laughs> I'm over it. So about 16 years ago, I had a motorbike accident where uh, a car didn't see me and wanted to be where I was, and as a result, I um, had uh, two nerves in my right arm seven, and being in between jobs, 
uh, I had nowhere to take sick leave from and nowhere to go back to after yeah. my recuperation period, and that's where you plug income protection insurance. Yes. Um, and as a result, um, as I say, the path led me down to or into my uh, father's legal practice, and I have not regretted that decision ever since. So, so what about seven, eight years after you graduated from your law degree, you finally ended up in a law firm, and lo and behold, it was working with your old man? Exactly. There you go. So you actually did articles under your dad? Yep. We actually shared an office for four years. Really? As in the one office with two desks in it. That's nice. Very nice. So, te- yeah. So, 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 tell me then, sort of, what did you, what kind of work did you cut your teeth in in those early days? Pretty much the same as I'm doing now, and that <laughs> is um, just different, different players and slightly different stories. Come on, Brit, you must have climbed the corporate ladder. Don't be, don't be shy. I'm sure you climbed no, up to different levels. Believe it or not. Um, oh, actually, now that we've got a. Uh, a trainee lawyer of our own in here, I can at least um, get them to cut their teeth on the uh, what are the less onerous matters. No, yeah. not true. But um, look, we do probably fifty percent criminal law, and that's everything from your traffic stuff uh, all the way to murders and the uh, and the serious crimes. Mm. Um, and then the other side of our practice is we've got a full time um, one full time conveyancing um, clerk. Yep. who incidentally is doing second-year law herself. Yep. Um, and we do commercial leases, we do a bit of matrimonial law. I like to call ourselves general problem solvers. But the stuff that people really want to hear about around dinner tables is the criminal stuff. Yeah, that's always the stuff, Unsurprisingly. I, that's always the stuff I enjoy hearing about the most. So how long had your, your dad sort of been in practice before you came along? Oh, now you're asking me to do maths. Um he had probably been in practice for 25 years, 20, 20 to 25 years. And you were like the, you were the first sort of other lawyer staff member to come on? Well, uh, he, he did have a, a partnership um, many, many years ago that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that ended. Um, but since then he'd been, and that's probably when I was not even 10, I think. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, and since then, yes, he'd been a sole practitioner. Very good. So, I mean, it must have been a massive change, you know, working in a behemoth like Cooper's, part of a big unit, and then into Deutsche Bank where you were sort of a little cog. How did you find uh, the adjustment going from there to a, to a suburban legal practice? Did you, was there things that you missed from what you were doing before, or were you, back, were you like a fish back in water where you were now? To be honest, I didn't find the transition very difficult at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a new challenge. It was new areas to, that I had to learn before I could speak um, knowledgeably or, or represent clients. Um, yes, I missed the uh, the collegiate atmosphere, if I can put it that way, the fact that there were so many people at my own level uh, and an age group that you could socialise with. Mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, when you hit about 30, then you know, that becomes somewhat less important. Mm. And the good thing about being, uh, at least on the criminal side, going to court a lot, um, is that a lot, all the other the criminal lawyers, we all know one another. We mm. talk to one another so that you get that collegiate atmosphere there as well. Um, one thing I did learn is that 
it doesn't matter how large the organisation is or small, you have office politics mm. as soon as you've got more than two people, yeah. or probably more than one person. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you Seems. can be at Price. You can be at Price Waterhouse Coopers in a in a, an industry group of say twenty people, mm. um, but that in itself is you know your small practice and you're part of the cosmos because you don't necessarily mm. interact with the rest of them. So. As I say, office politics, not just limited to the big places. Yeah. Okay, so let's then talk, uh, you know, get into the stuff that's going to make people pretty interested. So the criminal law, so you so you said you do what anything from what, traffic fines to murders? Yeah. So what's it like representing a murderer? First of all, do you ask them if they did it or not? Is that is that a question <laughs> that you can ask or not? Oh, I wish I had a dollar for every time people said that, or, or you know, how can you represent these monsters? The, the, the thing is, what, or what, what you do learn is, A, the media reports things terribly and in, in an incredibly biased and sensationalist way. Mm-hmm. Um, every crime, you're not going to have, I should, let me go back, a you're not going to come across monsters that kill for fun. Most mm. crimes of violence are perpetrated um, in atmospheres or circumstances that are spontaneous. Um, right, right. So people aren't necessarily going out to look for trouble. Right. So okay. As a, but I mean, obviously, there are cases where people are premeditated and going, you know, yeah. plan to kill their wife or their business partner. But are you saying that's the minority? The, yeah, tiny, tiny part of. Right. Um, the population of murderers, I guess, if you can put that way, from my experience. So what? give um, me a typical example of, of a case where it's circumstantial and not planned. Uh, well, I can't talk about one we've got going on at the no. moment. That wouldn't be a good idea. No, so we can, talk about my, we can talk about my client who was a drug user, yeah. needed money because wanted to get out of the place, went over to, to somewhere he thought would have a lot of money to rob, um, that being his drug dealer, went in there. The drug dealer didn't. Yeah, the drug dealer didn't want to give up his money that easily, really? and there was a bit of a struggle. And the drug dealer wound up with a knife in his chest <laughs> about four times. Wow. Okay, so that wasn't premeditated. So you're saying he was actually going there to get money, but um, so uh, okay, that situation. So as you say, he say he wound up with a knife in his chest, right? So you didn't actually say your client put that knife in his chest. Um, well, there was a struggle. <laughs> right. Okay. But, um, I mean, yeah, I guess in that situation it's, you know, could the client deny that he, that he did it? Or he says he did it, but he did it accidentally. I mean, will people just well, flat out deny that, I don't know, they weren't there and it wasn't them? Well, the, the story that he told the police and that um, ultimately the court believed was that he didn't go there with the intention of killing him. Right. Um, there was a struggle over the knife, and during that struggle, um, the drug dealer went, sorry, the victim was stabbed, um, and so it was an unintentional killing. But because it was an unintentional killing in the course of another violent crime being armed robbery, right. um, you get the same penalty as, as an intentional murder. Oh, really? But there is that, di- yes, but there is that distinction in if I can say, in terms of culpability, because he didn't really mean to kill him. Right, right. But he came there with a knife trying to threaten him to get money. Exactly. Mm. And, <clears throat> and things went horribly wrong. And are you saying in most of the sort of 
I mean, like, have you done a lot of murder cases? Is that something that happens frequently or...? Not all the time. Um, you know, only a handful, really. Mm. Um, there was another one where uh, we had a client and he was charged with murder, confessed to it, and it was shooting his grandparents. Um, wow. And as it turned out, the story that unfolded was, and it, which was supported by the forensic evidence, and no, it's not like CSI, but um, it, the forensic evidence supported the story, and that was that someone shot his grandparents in front of him as a lesson to him uh, not to cross them and Jeez. said, if you tell anyone that we did it, then your mother's next, your sister's oh, next, uh, and then you. So ultimately that came out of trial, and notwithstanding the fact that he had confessed, he was found not guilty. Hmm. Look, uh, one of the things that I always find interesting is, okay, so you're representing the criminal or whatever. I guess you know, in a way, you're really on his side. Uh, but how do you balance that? Because you have, as lawyers, you've got a duty to the court as well, don't you? So how does that sort of balance? Because in a way, you know, you see a criminal lawyer on, you know, representing someone, you think, oh, you're on their team, you're on their team. But you've, in a way, have you got dual loyalties to the court as well? And how do you balance that? Yes, you do um, have dual, dual loyalties. Let me explain... Um, people say, how can you represent these people if you know you did it? Well, mm. and you also asked earlier, do you ever ask them, did you do it? Yeah. Sometimes we don't ask, oh, a lot of the times we don't ask them because that limits the way you can defend somebody. I'll give you an right. example. If someone is accused of killing, uh, killing someone and the client tells you, yes, I did it, but, also, but then says... I want you, I've got Freddie over here who's prepared to say I was at his place playing PlayStation and drinking beer all night mm. when the murder took place, mm. i.e. an alibi witness. We are not allowed in that circumstance to present that alibi evidence to the court because we know it's not, we know it's not true. Right. So, we can't yeah. mislead the court. Mm. What we can do, though, is we can test the evidence that the prosecution has and m make them prove the case. Mm. So identification evidence, we can make sure or pro you know, make sure there aren't holes in, in the prosecution case um, so that essentially what we're doing is we're keeping the system honest in but, that sense. But you can't actually present a, a real defence scenario, an alternate scenario. If if he's admitted to that he that he killed them, we can't present a case that is contrary to the truth as we know it. That's mm. right. So but you, that, but yeah. believe it or not, a lot of a lot of criminal defences are run um, simply poking holes in the prosecution case because believe it or not, the police aren't infallible. Right, but I always thought the way they show it in the movies is that okay, so the prosecution goes first. And then you poke holes, but then, then the defence goes, you know, and has another equally long kind of go at, at defending it. Is that not how it works in practice? Mm, often not. You'd be surprised. And um, if they actually ran television shows and movies about uh, criminal trials the way they actually happen, it'd be a hell of a lot less interesting than it <laughs> appears up on the screen. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, so what, I mean, does that mean, 
So if the, if the client tells you they did it, it really limits your defence. Do you, when you first meet with them, say, listen, if you tell me that you did it, you're really going to stuff up your defence? Like, I would have thought that's a pretty important thing to tell people. Absolutely, and it's one of the first things we do. Yeah. It's not to say... Having said that, though, our job... I think something like 95% of, of matters resolve with a plea of guilty. Is that right? Yeah. Now... Because if they get to trial, you're saying there's an, there's usually so much evidence uh, that it's overwhelming. Exactly. So if the evidence against my client is overwhelming, then I'll tell my client that they really don't have a choice but to plead guilty. Mm. And then it's a then it's a question of um, speaking on their behalf to a court and ensuring that they get a sentence that is the best for them and the best for the community. Because let's face it, these people quite often can't talk for themselves. If they mm. could, then I wouldn't have a job. Mm. Wow. Okay, so a lot of the time it's really just uh, just doing a, a plea bargain. And how do you, like, how do these people um, get in touch with you? Like, surely you're not trawling the, um, the streets for would-be drug dealers and murderers and dropping your business no. cards around. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do that. I don't go... I don't go and tout in prisons, um, and I don't chase ambulances. You don't, um, you don't have a Facebook group for crims or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> a LinkedIn group? No, believe it or not, word of mouth. Um, yeah. Dad's been doing this long enough that he had um, a regular source of people turning up at the door or ringing, um, and I've managed to cultivate that too. And the funniest, or sorry, not the funniest, the the one type of referral that makes me feel really chuffed, ironically, is the one from a client who's in prison and he'll ring up <laughs> and he'll say, hey, Brett, how you doing? Long time no see. He'll say, my cellmate, John, isn't happy with his lawyer, needs a new lawyer. I said, he's got to use you. <laughs> and people, when I tell them, people say, but hang on, if he's in jail, how can he be happy with you? And w when this used to happen with Dad, the explanation was, well, they know that if it wasn't for Dad, they'd be in jail longer, and that's happy. That's a win for them. So that's the thing. A win isn't necessarily keeping your client out of jail. Yeah. A win for us is getting the right sentence for them that they're, you know, they can live with. Right. Okay. Uh, and I mean... Okay, obviously murder is the, the worst part, but do you do, a, do you have a lot of uh, is a lot of drug uh, drug dealing things as well? well? I don't see the big end of town, the big fish for the drug dealers, but there's yeah. a lot of petty drug deal um, drug dealing and drug drug trafficking crime, mm. uh, cannabis cultivation, that sort of thing. You see a lot of drug related crimes, and mm. that's burglaries and thefts for people to to fuel drug habits. Ah, I see. Um, Unfortunately, there's also a lot of sex offences um, oh, that are being prosecuted and that we, that we have to defend. And I'll be honest, they're the, as a practitioner, they're the most difficult ones oh, that I have God. to deal with. Yeah, that would be. Anyway, let's not... Um, let's not dwell let's on not that. But I mean, with the, I mean, do you... Uh, I mean, because you see it a lot, do you really sense and feel that there's, such a, there's a massive drug problem in the community or do you think it's just sort of isolated? Huge. Yeah. No, no, huge drug problem mm. in the community, um, without a doubt. And, and it, it, yeah, it, yeah, sorry. And it, it doesn't, 
it's not just the use of drugs, obviously. It's the the effects that that uh, that, that has, and that mm. has, um, you know, previously when it was heroin, the issues were burglaries and thefts, people to support their heroin habits. People that took heroin, they weren't necessarily violent, but then you get ice coming along, mm. and that's a serious problem because it turns people into monsters. Jeez. And do you see, I mean, the people that, that you see, I mean, are the ones that, do you see people that have sort of grown up in the street and had really difficult upbringings? Is that the vast majority? Do you see any people from, you know, reasonable sort of, you know, families uh, and it backgrounds? Cuts, it cuts across all of society. Mm. Um, it, it, it's sad that it does. Um, you see people that have um, put their kids through private schools that have had university educations, they meet the wrong people, taste the wrong thing, and then before you know it, they're in jail and the family's destroyed. Mm. Yeah. It's actually an interesting one. I, I haven't discussed this with you, but I, I listened to a podcast uh, about, which is another financial planner in America. He interviews financial planners. Anyway, it was a fascinating story. He interviewed someone who had a criminal conviction for drug dealing and, believe it or not, bounced back from it and uh, you know, and later became a financial planner somehow. But what the case was about, or what the way he described it was, he he was at university, you know, college, and what he used to do was he was working in a in a club, and he had like a close group of friends. And what he'd do is when he was working in the club serving drinks, he would occasionally get some drugs, and you know, him and his friends would would smoke it or whatever. He ended up uh, getting convicted of being a drug dealer. Uh, and, and it was just funny because, well, not funny, but it kind of struck me like the line of a drug dealer. On one hand, we think about drug dealers as people that, you know, import 10 kilos of drugs and chop it up and supply it to their 30, you know, people who then supply it. But but this was really interesting. It kind of was a different concept that this guy just got some drugs for his mates. That's right. It's, um, and if you going for a visa or going for a job, all the employers or the other countries seeing is conviction for drug trafficking and mm. you fall into the same basket. Yeah. So what about even on the other scale? I mean, there must be a lot of, is a lot of traffic offences as well? Is that stuff ever get interesting or is it boring? Sometimes it does. Uh, when your friend um, is uh, done allegedly doing 157 kilometres an hour in a Lamborghini and faces uh, the prospect that the police... Um, are going to seek forfeiture and destruction of a beautiful car. Sure, yeah, that gets interesting. <laughs> a friend of yours that happened to? I don't own a Lamborghini, Ruben. No, <laughs> it's always about a friend. So they wanted? Did they want that? So they actually could, wanted to confiscate the car and destroy it. Yep, it's a bit and like. And the law. Two of my pet. Well, two of my pet hates in in the criminal law is mandatory sentencing. Um, where, you know, as a knee-jerk reaction to the public saying their outrage that's fueled by sensationalist media, the government says, hey, you know what, we're going to just make ourselves look good and say this crime deserves an absolute minimum of X. Mm. Um, but the other thing is um, these traffic laws and the Hoon legislation has just been taken to the extreme mm. where if you've got a conviction for... Uh, drive suspended, for example, then um, the next time they can uh, they can seek to have your car destroyed. Jeez. And that's regardless of whether or not you're driving a $500 or a $1,000 bomb. 
or a hundred and fifty thousand dollar Lamborghini. Mm. It doesn't differentiate between. It's just not fair. But that's all right, goes there, and that's the way it goes. And did you save your mate's car? Still running. <laughs> well. Okay, Brett, look, thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show today. I mean, it was really fascinating. I knew some of these stories, but not, not all of them. Uh, and, you know, it sounds like a really interesting and varied work that you do. I'm really appreciative. I know I didn't give you a huge amount of notice, but, but I had been wanting to have you on the show for a while, so it just happened a little sooner than we expected. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And, uh, hey, anytime you want some more stories, you know where to find me. Okay, thanks a lot, Brett. See you later. Bye, Propeller head of the week. Okay, now it is time for my propeller head of the week. Now, my propeller head of the week this week is about another app which I use. Uh, it's on my iPhone. It used to be called Dropvox, uh, but now it's called Rec Up. What it is is you basically record a simple voice message on your phone, uh, and what it will do is automatically upload it to your Dropbox folder to a specific file. I find it really quite useful. For example, after my show here, what I'll do is I'll record an intro and I'll record it on my phone. Uh, it creates a file directly into my computer file folder and then I can send it off to my son for editing. So I find it to be a useful app. Uh, that's about all for the show today. Thank you very much for listening in. As I always say, go to our iTunes account, search the Finance Hour, uh, have a look at any of the previous episodes. Uh, but definitely leave, leave me a rate and review. That means we'll be able to uh, reach more people. Thanks for listening.